All right, good morning. Everybody staying warm here? Yeah, ish? Kind of? Yeah, well, hey, this chapter might bring up the ambient air temperature, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> it's a heavy chapter, chapter two of um, Second Peter. Um, certainly deals with, with a lot of, of difficult um, things. And so we uh, are going to get into that. But before we get into that, we want to just say welcome. Uh, if you've joined us online, we're grateful that you're here. And if you're here in person, braving the, 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 the treacherous weather, we're grateful that you've chose to come and to fellowship with us this morning as well. My name is Tri. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And as always, I'm honored to be able to be up here and speak and, and bring uh, God's message for us here today out of Second Peter. So we are traveling through Second Peter, and that thing is always such a hair trigger. But um, so uh, we want to look into this, and we're just going to kind of dive into it right now and work our way through it. So uh, chapter 2 says this. It says, but there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them. Bringing swift, swift destructions on themselves, many will follow their depraved conduct and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with fabricated stories. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. And so this is pretty much going to set the tone for, the, for most of the whole chapter here, just this idea of false teaching and false prophets and, and this idea that there have been false prophets and there are false teachers among you. And, and part of what Peter is pointing out to us is that, is that there have always been false teachers among uh, the church and within the church and around the church and in the name of the church. That uh, as we look and we look into First uh, John and some of these different things, we, we see that right off of the bat that, that these authors are coming against Gnosticism and different heresies. Paul is talking about uh, another gospel that's being preached and these kinds of things. And so uh, we, we understand that this has always been a part of the struggle of the church, and this will always be part of the struggle of the church. So it's incredibly important that we understand our Bibles, that we understand God's Word, that we know and have a place to go to to recognize what is true and what is false. And the best way to find out what is false is by studying what is actually true. Therefore, you can understand and you can get the red flags when you hear teaching that isn't in agreement with God's teaching. And it's this idea of, of these heresies. And a heresy is a kind of one of those Christianese words. And a heresy simply means to kind of deviate from orthodoxy. So basically this idea that this has always been the belief that the church has historically had this belief and then somebody is going to come out with kind of this new take on this thing. And they'll be like, oh, actually, no, we had it wrong. There really wasn't that, even though this has been the traditional teaching is actually this. And so um, we certainly have that going on today. I, I think that probably one of the biggest threats to the church today, um, to Christianity in a, in a way, um, isn't atheism. It's actually a movement called progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity really is um, kind of something that, that really popped its head out in a big way back in the 90s in this thing called the emergent church and stuff. And guys like Rob Bell and, and some other uh, of these kind of 
talking heads, basically kind of what they've done is, is they've begun to recreate Christianity. Um, and, and, and so uh, what they've done is, is they've, they've taken the teaching of the Bible and they've begun to kind of twist it to a narrative that is more acceptable to them and generally the culture around us as well. Um, some of the things about, uh, about this in particular of progressive Christianity is that they're going to they're gonna deny the deity of Jesus. And, and they're going to teach something that, that sounds much more like this, kind of like that in the beginning when God created, what he did was he infused the word or the son into all of the creation. And since we're part of that, since we're created out of dust and these different things, that we have this divine Christ nature that lives within us. And really the whole big idea is to become awakened to that and allow this Christ nature that's already in us to just kind of live out of us. They, they are going to deny the inerrancy of the Bible. They're going to say that the Bible is actually wrong, that, that it's been um, tainted, that, that people have um, mistranslated it, and also, too, that it's been too much um, influenced by people like Paul who had very bigoted attitudes and, and, and wrong thinking and things like that. So they're going to they're gonna deny the inerrancy of the Bible. They're going to deny sin in general. They're going to say that sin just doesn't exist. And, and what we're going to see is that this narrative plays out very well throughout the whole of culture. As a matter of fact, um, if you wanted to deal and modern psychology even today is going to deny the idea or the concept of sin or that people just basically inherently kind of move towards doing some of the wrong stuff in our lives. They're going to deny the substitutionary atonement of Jesus' death on the cross. They're going to say, if there's no sin issue, then there's no need for someone to provide an answer for that sin issue. And so they're going to deny that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for sin, um, that, that basically they're going to say that that's just cruel and that that would really just equate itself to like cosmic child abuse kind of a thing. These are actual quotes you might hear from some of those kinds of things. Um, so really, it's about uh, this universal Christ. It's about uh, the Christ that's in all of us and around all of us. Um, they're going to tell you that Jesus is not the only way to God, that basically that he's just a one way to God, that basically Jesus is kind of an avatar. He's a guy who kind of got woke. He's a guy who was awakened to the reality of the world and the systems around him and the reality of God and how to enter into that kingdom. But he's really no different than Buddha or uh, uh, Muhammad, or Confucius, or Mahatma Gandhi, or some of these other people that they would say kind of fit in this th same thing. The other thing that they're going to do is they're going to deny the reality of judgment. They're going to say that God really is never going to judge. He's not going to reorder things. He's not going to take what's wrong and make it right. He is not going to bring um, judgment. And so basically, like I said, this narrative is going to fit very well with what's going on actually in the world that we live in as well. And it fits very well into kind of a whole social justice movement that we're seeing within the world today too. They, they really begin to kind of really mesh themselves with one another. As a matter of fact, um, progressive Christianity is going to look a whole lot more like a blending of um, new age belief and postmodern belief kind of with the, some of the same terminology and some of the same words and things like that of Christianity. But at the end of the day, you don't have Christianity. 
know, the Bible really isn't that difficult to get. Now, I'll acknowledge and I'll agree that there are points in the Bible that aren't perfectly clear. There are areas where we kind of maybe have different and varying points and thoughts on and things like that. But the overall message of the Bible is not unclear, and it's not hard to understand, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, it's, it's quite clear. But when, so, so basically, in, in, in some of this, <clears throat> when we understand God's Word, we really need to be kind of, in a way, fundamentalists. And I don't mean that, and that has a really negative connotation, but I, I believe personally that we either fundamentally believe the Bible or we fundamentally are recreating the Bible into a belief system that better fits and, find, and that we find more acceptable um, in our own world. And so um, we, we, uh, we want to be um, aware of what's going on around us as well. So there's the idea, if you're, if you're a younger person you're going to understand this idea, too, of becoming woke, right? If you're not in, in that spot, you probably should go check it out. You should understand what it is to be woke. Um, our culture is really creating a works-based religious system in which people are actually being coerced and kind of forced into belief, that our belief is being, we're being groomed to, to believe certain things. And, and there's a culture out there that if you don't kind of work your way into these right things and you don't perform in a right manner and you don't show yourself to be woke, you're going to find yourself to be canceled in this culture. And, 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 and this is getting into a really a, a big problem. So when we start to look at the social justice issues of the world today, and as Christians, we should be very concerned about those things. We should be very um, uh, into those things, and we should participate in those things, but we should always do it from a biblical perspective. We have to understand that God has a prescription that he has given to us from his word in which we find freedom, in which we find social justice, and we find these things in. <clears throat> the problem is, is, that, is that the world is basically trying to um, create social justice in unbiblical ways. And they're believing and they're trying to kind of put out this narrative that if you don't believe that, then you're just a cruel and mean and horrible human being if you don't follow exactly these different things. And so <clears throat> our social justice approach must be biblical. You see, the problem that really is kind of beginning to present itself too is that is that we um, are actually entering into a place of even kind of almost woke capitalism in which you, we see, and this is what we really see, we really literally see businesses being forced out, people choosing to not participate or listen or purchase or do any of these different things depending on what somebody's views are on some of these social justice issues. Um, the problem with... Um, excuse me, um, the problem with many of these things, again, is that they come from a very unbiblical approach. When Martin Luther King began to talk and to deal with race issues in our country, his dream was this, that a man would be judged not by the color of his skin, but by the content of his character, by who he was right on the inside. And this is really what God wants. But, but the world around us and the culture around us is beginning to box people into bigger units, right? And, and if you're a part of this, if you believe this way, if you see the world this way, if your worldview is over here, now you're going to get boxed into this kind of, this, this uh, 
this is who you are. And this is never the way that God deals with us. And we have to be really careful with this because um, we're entering into a time where there's just this capacity because of the technology that we have to really create some very difficult and dangerous scenarios for the world around us in a lot of ways. So um, what we think we have to remember is that, is that culture doesn't come in to change the church. The church is supposed to go out and change the culture around us. And we do so by a standard and by a means that doesn't change, one that doesn't uh, adapt to our feelings. You see, the Bible has a recipe for freedom, and it really involves denying self, denying the flesh, and purity. James 3.1 says, Not too many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Matthew 7, 15, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And so we have to remember too as believers that so many of these things that come our way, we just have to look at them through a biblical lens. Remember that the, the Bible says that the enemy is going to come as an angel of light. It isn't going to be just these obviously evil things. What it is really is subtle things that are infused into a belief system that begin to twist and change. So the Bible really has to be our filter as we deal with these things. So it goes on to say, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood onto ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, and if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the depraved conduct of the lawless, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds, what he saw and heard. And so, so this is tough because this begins to talk about these things that we don't like to talk about. And it, and it talks about hell, and it makes hell very plain here. For one thing, that it says that this is a place that was reserved for these dark angels. See, hell wasn't ever created for people. Hell was created for Satan and his angels, the demonic realm that followed him in the rebellion. That was the creation of hell and the purpose of hell. However, people can choose to go there. And there's a reality of judgment. And what that should do is have twofold of an effect on us. One is that when we realize the reality of that, if we're outside of that, we need to understand that because God is righteous, because he is good, because he is perfect, he will not be tainted in his character by the approval of what he has deemed to be wrong. He won't do it. It won't happen. But this God is a loving God and has done everything for us to not ever have to have that to never have to sit under that judgment. You see, he sat under it. And in, in, the, in, the, in the crucifixion, Jesus went and literally put himself between us and that place and, and, and made a way so that we could live in harmony and in relationship with the God of the universe. Um, and, and so we have to understand first that this is a reality. And so if you're a believer and this isn't a concern of yours, it has to be concerning to us that there are people in the world that are in the spot, that face judgment, that, that, that aren't okay, that, that, are, that, are, um, that are under God's wrath and under his judgment. And our job is to go out and to be spreading the message of how do you 
you to heaven? How do you not have that be a reality in your life? And this should be, this should be like gut-wrenching to us, the reality that there's a whole world out there that doesn't know God, that doesn't have a relationship with him and therefore sits under his judgment. We don't like the idea of God judging things, except we certainly also don't like the idea of the injustice that we sit in in the world today. We don't like the idea of the suffering that's in the world today. And ultimately, when God brings his judgment, you see, God's judgment isn't just about crimes. God's judgment is the setting right of everything as he's proclaimed that it should be within his creation. His, his, his justice is the setting right of everything in his creation. And so, so the reality of it is, is if we want to live in a place where there is no sin, where there is no death, where there's no suffering, where there's no struggle, where there's no awful things that happen, where there's no death, where there's no starvation, then you see this is the protection that God gives us is by saying, I want to deliver you into that very thing. But that looks like I have to judge the wrong thing. But what is God doing? Well, the Bible says that he's patient, for one. It says that this is not his heart, that God does not, uh, he, he does not rejoice in the destruction of the wicked. It says that it is his heart that all would turn and that none would perish, that nobody would. This is the heart of God. It needs to be the heart of the church. See, and, and here, look at this picture. We have Noah in the middle of an unbelieving world preaching righteousness for a hundred years with zero converts that I can tell. But nonetheless, speaking into the culture, the culture around him, incredibly wicked and evil and doing these things. Lot living in the middle of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, God's people have always been infused commonly and living among a world that is lost. This is on purpose. It's on purpose so that we can affect the world around us. Noah, Lot, Joseph, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, all of the exiles of Jeremiah 29, what were they told to do? They were told to go, to build houses in this place, to plant crops, to live among the people, to be a light to the rest of the world. What were the Jewish nations supposed to be? They were supposed to be a light to the rest of the world that, that led the world to the realities of who God is. But the hard part about this, too, is that as we look in the Bible to see the Bible has a historical lesson for the unrighteous. It says that this is the reality of, of, of what God is going to do, that when God sets things right, for some, that will be a very fearful day. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to hold the unrighteous for punishment on the day of judgment. This is especially true of those who follow the corrupt desire of the flesh and despise authority. Goes on, bold and arrogant, they are not afraid to heap abuse on celestial beings, yet even angels, although they are stronger and more powerful, do not heap abuse on such beings when bringing judgment on them from the Lord. But these people blaspheme in matters they do not understand. They are like unreasoning animals Creatures of instinct, born only to be caught and destroyed, and like animals, they too will perish. So it's this idea that, that they're just creatures of instinct, that they're just kind of acting on, on, the, on their instincts and just what that looks like. If you want to read something that looks almost exactly like this, read the book of Jude. It's, it's, it's almost just point by point in this same kind of a thing. 
So what do we have going for us versus that nothing other than Christ? We have nothing. There's no good thing that dwells in me. I'm not a good person. I have a good God who came and, and, and changed my life. I had people who intersected in my life, and they, they came and they, they, they showed me the way. They helped me to understand who Christ was, and they discipled me, and they, they led me along. And so, so what should this do to us? This has two options for us as, as the church. We can either make an enemy out of the world, which is what many people are doing. We begin to see ourselves as, as separate and elitist, um, not like them kind of a thing having no place to, to reckon with. But, but the Bible tells us in Ephesians that, that we were in the same boat at a certain place. But the God, but God showed up in our lives and he changed our lives and, he, he, and the Holy Spirit came in. And that's the thing that stands hopefully between us and the depravity that we're capable of. See, the problem with the human race is that I don't know that we really understand the degree of depravity that we're capable of. Somebody said, and I love the quote, it said something like that, that we don't understand how sinful we are in the same way that a fish doesn't understand how wet it is, you know? We just don't get it because we're just immersed in it, you know? I was so saddened to hear that um, this week that, that one of my, honestly, one of my heroes of the faith, one of the guys I really looked up to um, as far as learning from and apologetics, Ravi Zacharias, to, to learn that he's been leading a, a double life and that, and that all kinds of stuff and has come out. And, and you just see these guys who get way up there just fall one after another after another. I think that should tell us maybe something in the church that, that, uh, that that's just not a safe. But, but just to, to understand that, that, that we just aren't that far off I don't know that we as a culture understand the degree of sickness that we're living in. I don't know that we really get it. And I don't know that in the church, if we really recognize how much we've actually kind of let that come in and that instead of living in purity and instead of living in the way that God has called us to live, instead of saying and understanding that he has prescribed freedom for us through his word, we've accepted the ways of the world and we've allowed it to, to kind of come in too much. And then when we do that, though, it starts to affect us. We can't be unaffected by this stuff. And Ravi Zacharias allowed some things to come into his life. And even though he was an incredibly brilliant man, he fell to some really, really not good stuff. And, um, and not just fell, but as it shows, he was, he was just perpetually caught up in this sin. What a shame. But thankfully, we also understand that our standard is not people that the standard never changes. And if anybody, if myself, if Ravi Zacharias, if any other leader in the Christian community fails to live up to the principles of, of Christianity and to Christ, it changes nothing. The standards are the same. Jesus is still the same. He's the same yesterday, today, forever. And it does not diminish it at all. But in the world's eyes, it does. And this is why it's important how we live and what we do. See, there's a reality of hell, and this is a hard thing, but Jesus taught about it and spoke about it more than anybody in the Bible did. But you see, he understood the reality of it, but he understood, too, the reality of that. And what did that do? That propelled him into the mission that he had for the world to save the world so that they didn't have to, so that, righteous, so that righteousness could prevail and death would be defeated. 
They will be paid back with harm for the harm they have done for their idea of pleasures to carouse in broad daylight. They are blots and blemishes, reviling in their pleasures while they feast with you with eyes full of adultery. They never stop sinning. They seduce the unstable. They are experts in greed and a cursed brood. They have left the straight way and wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. But he was rebuked for his wrongdoing by a donkey, an animal without speech, who spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. These people are springs without waters, mist driven by a storm. Blackest darkness is reserved for them, for they mouth empty boastful words, and by appealing to the lustful desires of the flesh, they entice people who are just escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, for people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they are worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. There are springs without water. Why do we go to a spring? We go to a spring to get water. They're mists driven by a storm. Why do we like to see a storm at times? Because the rain needs water. It, the, the land needs nurtured. It needs, it needs watered. And if all that comes is just a mist, then, then it's just this deceptive thing that didn't fulfill itself. If we go to a spring and there's no water there, then it has no value. It has no use there. See, the Bible's clear on a lot of this teaching that, 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 that there's just this reality of life. There's a contrast of life. Psalm 1 deals with this, and, and, it, and it says that, um, that the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. And it goes on to say that the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the ways of the wicked shall perish. You see, these are people and they promise freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. See, I don't think that the human being alone and apart from God understands the way of freedom. We don't understand anything about freedom. As a matter of fact, we think that freedom is doing what we want to do. But freedom is not doing what we want to do. Freedom is doing the thing that keeps you out of bondage. That's what freedom is. See, God tells us, and he gives us direction in his word. He tells us things like, don't lie, right? And if we don't lie, we preserve our freedom. But if we do lie, if we make the decision to lie, then we now live under the bondage of that lie. We, we have to remember what we told, who we told it to. We've got to tell more to cover it up. We have to, we have to live in fear of being exposed for our lie. We just lost our freedom but see, these are people in the culture and the world that we're living around is promising freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity, while they don't understand it themselves. And what are we doing as a culture? We're trying to say that if we're just trying to make everything okay, if we can just make everything okay and we can eliminate, we can just cut the chains and we can have no standards or no, no morality, no, no anything, let's just have it as we will, then we'll find freedom in that. But you know, that's never gonna provide freedom for us. God's ways are going to give freedom. He's, he's the one who has prescribed freedom for us in his word. And I think this is a great opportunity, too, to, to just look inwardly and say, hey, are you mastered by anything? Is there anything other than Christ that controls your thoughts, your actions, what you do, where you go, 
what you allow into your mind? Are we mastered by different things? Because as believers, we're supposed to not be mastered because there's a spiritual principle there that says you can only serve one. You can only serve one master, for you'll love one and you'll forsake the other. So are you mastered? Because if we are mastered by something, it really leaves us ineffective for the kingdom work that God has for us. It would have been better for them to not have known the way of righteousness than to have known it and then turn their backs on the sacred command that was passed on to them. Of them, the Proverbs are true. A dog returns to its vomit and a sow that is washed returns to her wallowing in the mud. After having gotten something out from the inside out, something that was making them sick, they take it back in. And after having cleansed themselves from the outside of something that was presenting them as, as then they just wallow in the mud again. And this is, the, this is just a tough teaching, and it says they would have been better off, actually, to have not known than to have known and to turned away. Jesus tells a parable about this, and he says this. He says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation. So what is it saying? What is he telling us? He's saying, look, you can't just clean the inside of the house. You, you, you can't just leave it unoccupied. So, so this is a person, and they've had this demon cast this, this, and had this freedom and this, wow, this is amazing. And they've, they've, walked, they've swept the house. They've cleaned everything out. It looks good, but it's empty on the inside. They haven't filled it. They haven't filled this house back up. And so therefore, it says that this demon goes over arid places. And when he comes back, he comes and he checks and he finds the house. The house has been cleaned but not occupied. It's not filled. It's just empty. It looks good, but it's empty. And, and, and so it goes and it finds seven of its buddies and it moves in. And the condition of that person is now worse than what it was before. And so the big question is, is, is are we filling our house? What are we filling our homes with? What are we filling our spiritual house with? Are we, are, we, are we in God's word? Are we understanding God's word? Are we seeing the culture as it is? Are we, are we, are we allowing the culture to silence us? Are we allowing them to just kind of uh, push our, our thought, our direction? I'm telling you, it's a really effective thing that they've got going. I, there's probably not a person here that's not questioning some of the things that they believe because of if you're active in, at all out there um, on the web. So what are we filling our house with? Because we're gonna to have to fill our house. We're gonna need a full house. We're gonna need it to be full of the things of God and, and God's word. What are we doing in our families? What are we teaching our children? What are we teaching our grandchildren? What direction are we going so that we can leave a legacy? How are we equipping them to live in this world that they're about to be challenged with? You know, politics seems to be kind of our big push, but I wanna tell you that politics are the very last line Politics are the last line. Culture defines the politics of the world around us. So we need to be effectively engaging the culture around us. We need to recognize, and even by this 
whole chapter, we need to recognize that there's a world out there that's lost and broken and hurting. And we too were once a lost and a broken and hurting people. But we found Jesus and we allowed his life to change our lives. And now the call on our lives is to go out and to live it so that others can come in, so that there's room for others. We need to make room and we need to be purposeful. We need to be a people who are on mission. We need to be lights out in a dark place, right? We need to do the things that we've been called to do because there's a reality of judgment. And then there's also a reality that God has prescribed a way in which people really find freedom. And the Bible, the way that people and culture is trying to go about it right now is a very unbiblical way, and it will not produce the freedom that they're hoping for. But we have answers. So be prepared. Be prepared, church. Be ready. This is really exciting times. These are not times to be down. These are times to be excited about the possibility because as the, as the culture struggles, and I'm telling you, we're living in a place where we're struggling. We know this. People are going to have questions. And as the church, we need to have answers. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this day. And we know that some of these things are really hard things and things that we don't get. We don't understand them. And we, we would even, if it were up to us, sometimes there are things that we would just change. But we know that and recognize that that's not up to us, that you're the sovereign creator. And if you're sovereign over us, Lord, then that means that you have, you have the right to dictate what's good to us. And, and we need to be a people who, who respond to that, who listen to that, who understand that. Help us, Lord, that we would not live in any kind of fear of judgment because we don't really sit under judgment if we're in Christ, but that we would sit in a, in a fear and a healthy respect of you and, and, and of our neighbors just have a, such a deep love for them and a deep desire to not see them experience that. Help us to know, Lord, that before anybody and any of us really get the good news, we have to understand that there's bad news. So, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the reality of your word. We thank you that you sometimes set us back on our heels. Sometimes you take us to uncomfortable and unpleasant places so that we can kind of reframe how we're thinking about this. So, Lord, may we just be your people in your church. May we move in the direction you've called us to. May we walk in the good works that you prepared in advance for us to walk in. May we be pleasing to you, Lord, and may we be guarded in our own lives. Lord, may we, may we keep a short account of sin in our own lives, recognizing its capacity to, to really devour us, Lord. And help us, Lord, to live in the freedom that you purchased for us and help us to proclaim and to profess the, pre the freedom that you have for the world around us. Lord, help us to be fearless. Help us to, to not be silenced, but to recognize that you've given us a voice to speak and that you've called us to really champion your causes in the world around us. Help us to stand in the gap to those who are proclaiming freedom but live in depravity their own selves. Lord, we just want to see freedom for everyone, and we know that you're the way to freedom. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.